from the book of Acts, chapter 16, starting with verse 16. Once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought before them the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in their stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour, the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. The word of the Lord. From the book of Revelation, chapter 22, starting with verse 12. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. The word of the Lord. Let's stand for our gospel reading. Reading from the gospel of St. John, chapter 17, starting with verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. 
May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you have gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made, made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. The gospel of the Lord. May be seated. Good to see you all this morning. Glad to be back with you all today. We are for one more Sunday. Today, we are in the season of Eastertide, the season after the resurrection. Uh, next week is Pentecost Sunday. And our stories today point us to the power of the love of God. How powerful the love of God is that this story that we're part of, the story of Jesus, is so radical that it changes everything, changes everything. So this week, we stand in the church calendar between resurrection at Easter and Pentecost, which is next week. And Pentecost is this moment. I grew up Pentecostal charismatic, so we get excited about these kind of themes. But next week is Pentecost, and it's when we recognize Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on all flesh, on everybody. And this is actually the birth of the church. So we just had our church Little C's birthday, like last week, two weeks ago. And then the church Big C's birthday is next week, <laughs> okay? It's the church everywhere. It's this season of Pentecost. Also, this past Thursday was what's called the Feast of the Ascension, where we celebrate Jesus's ascension into heaven. And I don't know about you, but in children's church and church growing up, this part of the story was always like neglected and also kind of weird, like where Jesus ascends into heaven. Like, what does that mean? Like he's a, you know, a... a primitive spaceman who just kind of flies up and all the images and icons you see like Jesus's feet up in clouds, you know, what, what is going on here? And, uh, but really the important thing about ascension for us to remember, and a lot of scholars believe that maybe he didn't actually go up into heaven, that there was some Old Testament language there and that he's actually kind of going into a different dimension in some ways and going into a, a different reality. Can't unpack all of that today. But um, this idea of the ascension is that he's at the right hand of the Father which means he rules over everything, that Jesus is the Lord of the universe, that after his resurrection, he is the one who is the ruler over everything. Jesus rules the world. Um, so today we look at what happens when God rules the world. What happens when God's authority breaks into our everyday lives? What does that look like? Now, we don't always see God's rule and reign in our everyday lives. We don't always see that in our culture. We don't see that on the news. We won't see it fully. We won't see it completely until Jesus returns. But he is now, here and now, he is Lord. He rules over everything. And in the midst of a world that doesn't know that, a world that lives by the old rules, the church is invited to be a people who proclaim his lordship, who proclaim a different story, in how we speak and also how we live. So it's kind of like we don't see God's rule and reign everywhere right now, but the church should live God's rule and reign here and now. Um, my pastor often describes it as um, 
Like when spring first begins, that the first thing you see in certain parts of the country, I'm not sure if that's true here, <laughs> you see daffodils that spring up first before anything else. And it's kind of a sign of spring. That the church, we are the daffodil people, okay? We are the people who are kind of the, we show the signs that spring has sprung, even when everything else doesn't look that way. Now, things change depending on who's in charge, don't they? Things look different depending on who's in charge. If you've ever had a transition in your company, you know this. You know that when somebody else takes over, things begin to change. N.T. Wright tells a story where he was speaking to a youth group one time, and, and he said, what would this youth group, he, he challenged them with this passionate question, what would this youth group look like if God ran the show? And they responded, well, the coffee would be a lot better, okay? Um, but seriously, it's a question we have to ask ourselves, like, what would sacrament look like? If we were all able to somehow get ourselves out of the way and allow God to run the show, I think we might be surprised. I often challenge myself with this, like how much of sacrament as we've planted it is often running on my strengths and my weaknesses. And, and if that's the case, then we're always gonna be limited in some way, <laughs> okay? If it's always running on my strengths and my weaknesses, so what does it mean for me as the pastor to get out of the way in some ways, to allow the spirit to run this? But that's not just me. Like, what would it happen if we lived as a community? And I'm not saying anybody does this perfectly, and I'm not saying that we're not doing this now in some ways, but, but like what it might be if all of us get out of the way and we surrendered our gifts and talents to God? What might happen in and through our lives when we surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit? That's the question we have with our text today. In our Acts text specifically, and that's where we're gonna spend most of our time today, but we're confronted by this radical thing. The book of Acts, if you want to, during the season of Pentecost, it would be a great time to read the book of Acts. It's very narrative, it's very story, and it's really the birth of the church, like what happens in the church. And it's messy, and there's like miraculous things happen, and crazy things happening, and persecution happening. There's conflict that happens. There's all these kind of things. Um, but we see that the church is weird. Like the church is weird. It's a weird thing, okay? I, I was talking to a church planner this week who for some reason I can't explain asked me to be on the board of his church plant, okay? So I'm in a board meeting with him and he's just expressing the struggles and difficulty. If you think of it this week, pray for this guy. Um, Clarksville, his name is Josh Young and, and he's planning a church and, and he's talking about all the struggles and the difficulties that come along with church planting. Uh, he's talking about people committing and how hard it is and attendance. He's only a month or two old and money and all that kind of stuff. And, and one of the things I felt like I was supposed to tell him is we can't forget that in our world today, in 21st century America, being a church is weird. It is. It's a weird thing. Why? Well, we're stuck in this place where a lot of us culturally think it's not weird because a lot of our parents went to church and that was kind of part of the culture. So we think church is kind of a thing. But if you've looked at the statistics there are fewer and fewer people attending church regularly today. It's an odd thing to have a regular rhythm to be part of a community of faith, especially in a city, you know, among a lot of younger demographics. Like, it's a weird thing. Previous methods don't always ring true anymore. So sometimes the church gets stuck in this place of like, okay, what are we doing again? Like, why, why are we gathering? What is our purpose? What is our point? And yet, Acts tells us, and we've seen throughout church history, this is how God moves in the world, through these bands of people called the church, 
surrendered to the Holy Spirit. So in our Acts text, we have this story of Paul and Silas, and they're on this missionary endeavor, and they meet a slave girl. And it says that she had the spirit of divinization, or divination, depending on the translation. But it said that this spirit that she has, it brought her owners a great deal of money. What does that mean? Well, it means she like can tell the future. She's like a fortune teller. Okay? And she's, through her gift, she is getting her owners a lot of money. So she's telling other people's fortunes, and she's getting a lot of money. Now, I don't know if you grew up in church cultures like I did. Um, in my church, we were hyper afraid and constantly talking about our fear of witchcraft, right? Like, that was a constant. Like, I didn't know anybody who practiced witchcraft, but our church talked about it a lot, okay? Like, it was something like we really, and we were rightly apprehensive of fortune telling, of astrology, of things like that, but things got really intense when I remember I went to a Christian high school, and they were boycotting the Harry Potter books and films, right? Which actually have some, like, biblical themes to them, right? What'd you say, Tyler? Blasphemy, right? And I remember even when the first movie came out, um, and I was in high school, and one of the, uh, one of the, <laughs> there was a discussion about it in one of our classes, and one of the girls said, well, I don't even know why you'd open yourself up to those demons when you would go and watch that movie. That was the kind of language that we used, right? And, and so it was something about, we didn't really trust the Holy Spirit that lived in us, that we were so afraid <laughs> that our faith would crumble or that something would jump on us, you know, from watching a movie that we, did, we didn't really trust that. Um, I also don't know if you've been following this. There's this, I'm not even going to name him, but there's this well-known preacher who made a statement last week. He's had a lifelong of ministry and he's done a lot of good, but he's at this point where he needs to retire and stop saying public things, okay? But, but he said, he, he was defending why he doesn't fly commercial. He only flies in his private jet. All right, we're starting there, okay? So he's defending that fact and he says, um, he says well, I don't want to be in a, in a metal tube in the air with all those demons. That's what he said, right? And so somebody kind of interviews him and he just, he just goes after them and talking about devil's drama. Anyway, we've got this thing that's kind of weird in our culture sometimes with that. And so we don't know when we read the Bible and we see witchcraft and we see fortune telling, it's like, what do we do with this? It's kind of odd. There's a reason why witchcraft is condemned in the Bible. There's a reason for that. But it's not based out of fear. It's not this idea that a boogeyman is going to jump on us or that the Holy Spirit's not strong enough to handle these things. It's witchcraft and divinization are condemned because they're a form of control. They're a form of not trusting God. What witchcraft does is it convinces the one doing it that they can control the world. They are in control of the world and they're not surrendered to God. That's why it's condemned in Scripture. So in this case, like if we think about it that way, there's a lot of other less obvious forms of what we might call witchcraft than just what we call witchcraft, right? Like there's other ways we try to control our world that are not surrendered to God. And this girl is literally a slave to this kind of control. Like literally she is. She has this gift and this gift has enslaved her to her owners wanting to make a profit from her. And so she's following Paul and Silas around and she's shouting, these men are slaves to the most high God. And she's doing this every day, it sounds like. So they're going and preaching and she's following them and saying, these men are slaves to the most high God, all right? So she recognizes that these men are slaves to something different than what she's a slave to. 
They're surrendered to something else than what she's surrendered to. They are slave to God. She was, so, she was saying this so much, it annoyed Paul, so he cast the spirit out of her. This is the class I missed in seminary, exorcism by annoyance. Okay, I missed that, that one. But we see quickly a contrast here. There's this way of control, of trying to manipulate things, of making things happen on our own. And then there's the way of the spirit, the way that's surrendered to God. The way of control is self-centered. I can make money. I can be happy. I can make it happen by myself. And the way of the spirit is wild and free. But the way of the spirit is not always easy. So think about this. I, I love these literary elements that jump out in the text, but Paul declares freedom for this girl. She's set free. And then really quickly, he and Silas are put in chains. <laughs> think about that, right? So she, he declares freedom and then they're put in chains. The men who were her slave masters, it says in the text, it says, saw that their hope of money-making was gone. All right, so they're, they're bothered by this. In other words, you messed with their money. You messed with their sense of control. <laughs> Things get the most stirred up in our world when we mess with that thing that's our source of control, don't they? Our hope for mankind. Specifically, we can just say it outright. Things, we get the most emotional when our money gets messed with. <laughs> And the leaders, what they do is, so these guys, um, these slave owners, they bring them before the magistrates who are the Roman leaders. And they say this, basically, these men are messing with our source of exploitation. They're messing with our money-making, our ability to make money. And then they pull an ethnic card out. So they say they're Jewish and they're bringing in all these Jewish ideas about ethics and all this stuff into our Roman culture. And this is a Roman culture. And so they're messing with us. They're foreigners. And they're telling us that what we're doing with this girl is wrong. Well, this stirs up the crowd, okay? Don't let anybody ever tell you the Bible doesn't condemn slavery. Why? Well, here we have slave owners who are upset because what Paul and Silas have just done is they have proclaimed liberation over a woman who is a slave. The crowd joins in protest and what the magistrates do is they just capitulate to the crowd. So the crowds are pressuring us. Okay, we're going to put them in jail. So Paul and Silas are arrested, they're flogged, they're thrown in jail, they're tied in stocks. The thing that we notice here is that following in the way of the Spirit is not the way to easy breezy living. It's not seven steps to a better life. It's, if you do that, if you believe that, you might not be following the right Spirit. The way of the Spirit is hard. No doubt Paul and Silas at this point, I mean, you're thrown in jail, you're, you're on a missions trip and you're thrown in jail. I would think that was a setback, wouldn't you? I think Paul and Silas are probably thinking, oh man, we were trying to be missionaries and now we're thrown in jail. This is putting a real wrench in this, right? If you ever think you're not making progress in your life, think about how much time the apostle Paul spent in prison. He spent so much of his life just in jail, Right? So what did they do? Well, they prayed and they sang hymns to God. It's probable that prayer was just a normal part of their rhythms. They're just praying as a normal part of their day. I was a um, pretty fearful child as a kid. And uh, my mom says it's because I was so smart, which sounds like a mom thing to say, doesn't it? But I was constantly afraid of very spiritual things, okay? 
So, and some of it you can tell from my upbringing when I describe it, why probably. But I was afraid of demons and witchcraft and all that stuff. And I, I remember as a kid, I read a book by an author named Frank Peretti. Some of you may know who that was, right? And it freaked me the heck out, right? And I couldn't sleep, and it was a long time before I could sleep. And I remember when I was really little, my mom used to sing worship songs to me, okay, to, when I was afraid. And then as I got older, um, she would play worship tapes for me, right? And I would listen, and these songs were the things that calmed my fears, that spoke to me. And today, some of those same songs that I used to listen to and my mom used to sing to me, I sing to Lucy. I've passed them on, and I sing some of these same worship songs. Why do we do that? Why do we sing when we're afraid? Why do we sing when we're in difficult situations? Why do we sing when we express joy in our lives? Well, singing forms us. Um, when we come to church, the singing time is not just the entertainment part of the service. <laughs> That's how we often think of it, right? This is the fun part, right? And um, when we sing hymns and anthems, they shape who we are, and they also unify us. They bring us together. So think about all the spirituals that were sung during the civil rights movement. Think about that. Songs bind us together in a common cause. Singing is worship to God when we sing it to God, and singing shapes who we are, and it brings us together. So they're singing, they're expressing their prayers, and they're expressing their songs, and then suddenly there's an earthquake. And the earthquake is so violent that the foundations of the prison are shaken. It's this miraculous kind of thing. Now, I've never been in an earthquake before, but last week we were dangerously close to a tornado. And I grew up in Oklahoma and we had lots of tornadoes, but this one was the closest we've ever been when I was out of town last week. And we were in the closet and we were all, you know, huddled up together and found out that the tornado was like a mile and a half from us. And so we heard the freight train sound that you hear. There was water coming up in the toilet, you know, as, as we're sitting there, we're he hearing the sirens and all this kind of stuff. And it was, it was crazy. And so I'm thinking about this moment. I'm thinking about this earthquake that's shaking at this time. And it says all the doors were opened and the chain fell off. Nothing in the text says that they were anticipating this. It's not that Paul and Silas were sitting there going, God, if you could just bring an earthquake and knock off our chains, like that's what we want to do. No, they're not anticipating this. It just happens. So God provided a way of escape, right? But here's the problem. They don't escape. They don't leave. They stay there. So the jailer, he sees the doors wide open and he tried to kill himself. Why? Failure at his job was like, I might as well die. He was part of a system where his job and his self-worth was so tied into how well those prisoners were contained that if he didn't have that, there was no reason to live. But Paul basically says, dude, no worries, we're all here. Like we're staying put. And the jailer is so profoundly shaken that these men would radically trust God to such an extent they would stay in prison even though the doors were open. He says, how must I be saved? Now this phrase is one that if we read it on the surface level, it's like every preacher's dream. That some miracle would happen, some profound thing, and then someone would just come up and get on their knees and say, how must I be saved, right? But if you actually read the text here, saved meant a lot of things in the ancient world. He's really saying, how do I get out of this mess? <laughs> like all the doors are open and the chains have fall off. Like, what do I do? Can you help fix this for me? You probably know what's going on with all of this. 
So he's not asking the question, how do I go to heaven when I die? He's not asking, how can I have an existential peace with God? No, he's basically looking around and all the chains have fallen, the doors are open, his supervisor will eventually be there and he's saying, how do I get out of this thing? Paul and Silas answer both his superficial question and his deeper question with the same answer. Believe in Jesus. Lay down your previous identity, the thing that you were enslaved to, the thing that makes you think that you might as well die if you fail at your job and trust in the one true God. That's the classic good news of Christianity. It's not, here's how to go to heaven when you die. It's not turn or burn. It's not get in touch with your true self and look inside of yourself and find your truest self. It is Jesus Christ is Lord of the world. That's the good news. His narrative runs the show and you are invited to join in. That's the story. So they go to his house and he and his entire household are baptized. They change their life. They, they surrender to God. So we see in this story, the slave girl was liberated from her control and from her slavery. The jailer was liberated from his way of living and he surrendered to God in Christ. And Paul and Silas are so attuned to the spirit, they don't need to control even when a way of escape is provided for them, they don't even need to take that into their own hands. God's liberating spirit was with them. This passage reminds me of a Bob Dylan song, okay? You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yep. Indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. You might be a rock and roll addict prancing on the stage. You might have drugs at your command, women in a cage. You may be a businessman or some high degree thief. They may call you a doctor or they may call you chief, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, you are. You're gonna have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or maybe the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. You might be a preacher with your spiritual pride. You may be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You may be working in a barber shop. You may know how to cut hair. You may be somebody's mistress. You may be somebody's heir, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or maybe the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. We all serve somebody. <laughs> There's a motivating impulse for what we do. Who are we serving? Do you remember the old Greek myth? Maybe you've heard it of um, Narcissus or Narcissus. He was this uh, guy who basically fell in love with his own reflection. <laughs> Saw his reflection and was just struck and was in love. That's where we get the term narcissism, okay? Narcissus. Some of us have fallen into the trap of serving ourselves. We think that we're the center of the universe, this week, I was getting really frustrated with myself in some of my deficiencies as a pastor. Some of the things that I know I'm not good at and I wish I could do better. And I really started to beat myself up about it. And uh, we might think about that and we don't think of that as being self-centered. We think, well, that's thinking negatively about yourself. That's not self-centered. But 
But it's still, it's believing this myth that if I was just better at that, then everything in the world would be better. Just another form of self-centeredness. That if I could just, if I was made a little differently, or if I had a little different skills in this way, or if I could just get my act together in this way, then the world would just all be better. That's kind of self-centered. That's pride. It's lack of trust in the God who really runs things. He's the one that runs the show, not us. As we move towards a close here, in Jesus's prayer in John 17, he prays that those who believe in him would be one. And he says this in several ways. He uses the word one over and over again in this prayer. And what's the purpose for the unity? What's the purpose for the oneness that Jesus prays for his followers? Well, it says, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus says, righteous father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you've sent me. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So Jesus's prayer is for unity. Why? Well, at the core of God's person, at the core of who God is, is unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's a togetherness, a self-giving love at the heart of who God is. Unity doesn't mean there's not distinction. When a group is in true unity, it doesn't mean there's not differences or they're, they're all the same thing but it means that they're together. That's this idea of harmony, that like when we sing together, like we're all singing different parts, but it's together, right? When we confess the creed together each week, one of the things that may have struck you as odd the first time when you heard it was when we say we believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, okay? In a previous church I was at, uh, we even had someone, when we said the creed, they stood up and they left. <laughs> and somebody asked them later, like, why did you leave? And they said, well, I didn't know this was a Catholic church when I walked in here, right? Well, the word Catholic just means universal. It means Christians throughout the world and everywhere. And that creed was written way before there was a Catholic church and Protestant church. It was just one church at that time. Um, often in our world, when people say Catholic, they mean Roman Catholic, which is one denomination in Christianity. But, and yes, there's ways around that, like, we could use other words. We've talked about that before. I, but I've intentionally fought to keep that word Catholic in our saying of the creed because it messes with people, okay? Because we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. And if there's something in us that resists that word, we need to talk about it and think about that. But the early church believed that unity had to be at the core of who the church is. It's not just a nice thing that the church should strive for, that we should get past our differences and come together. It is who the church is. Unity, like togetherness, we have to be together. And in verse 20, Jesus is specifically talking about you and me. He's talking about all who would believe in him. He wants us to be together. And this kind of unity that Jesus prays for is directed by the Father. And elsewhere we see it comes about by the Spirit. This means that true unity doesn't begin by looking to one another and thinking about what the lowest common denominator is. That's not really the source of true unity. Unity comes about by the Father through the Son in the Spirit. Now, there is a lot of unity that is destructive in our world. That's what cults are all about, okay? 
My, my sister um, is getting ready to move from Tulsa to Austin, Texas. She and her husband and their baby are moving to Austin, Texas. And they're preparing to do that. And they don't know anybody there. And so they said, they were just joking when I was there this weekend. They said, it would be really great if you could just move your whole congregation from Nashville to Austin. Like that would be wonderful. And I jokingly said back to her, I said, well, I think if a pastor could pull that off, it wouldn't really be a congregation, it would be a cult, <laughs> right? <laughs> like that's, that's kind of a, a different thing. So there is some unity that is destructive. People do a lot of crazy stuff in the name of this faux unity. But notice this, that stuff never really lasts. It never really creates lasting change. Unity that comes about because a leader is charismatic or because of a certain thing that a group has in common, that never really lasts. When we're drawn by a personality, that personality is eventually found lacking. When someone is drawn by a cool new trend, it's really fast before that trend is uncool. We have to be bound together by something deeper than that. Historically, the church has said we are bound together by the Spirit of God. We are bound together by the fact that God loves the world and desires to save us. And that's it. Sacrament is one expression of that. And we are a microcosm of that kind of unity. So I've been reflecting a lot lately on the next five years of our church. We just finished five years. What are the next five years? And it's important that we constantly focus on being a church that is bound together by the story and the spirit of God and nothing else, right? We aren't bound together by me, the planter. We aren't bound together because many of us are about the same age and we like to hang out together, okay? We aren't bound together because we found a cool new way of doing church. Like that can't be what's at our core and who we are. Because here's the thing, when Hendrix and Elsie and Nora and Henry and Willow and Lucy and Amelia and all the other kids, when they get to be our age, I'm not gonna be cool at all. I'm not very cool now, but I'm not going to be cool at all. When they're my, and my preaching is not going to be their favorite, okay? We're going to be a variety of ages. And this way of doing church won't be trendy at all. It's not trendy now, but it won't be trendy then. Maybe we'll be having debates about mission trips to Mars or something like that. I don't know what we'll be doing. <laughs> but will we build this church on what we like? Or will we build this church on something deeper? The church is always only one generation away from extinction. Not just our church, I mean the church. Think about that. The church has survived because it's been passed down from generation to generation to generation. We don't pass on trends or affinities. We pass on the story of the God who saves and liberates. This reality compels us to freedom. If we are slaves to our preferences or our personalities, we will allow that to run each of our lives instead of God. And that's part of what learning wisdom, learning trust, that I'm not the end of things, that my perspective is not the only perspective that's so critical. Trusting the Holy Spirit is just that. It is trust. It is saying, I am yours. I am not my own. It is a leap of faith to lean on something that we cannot see. And the very last, one last thing, that's revolutionary thing that Jesus says here, he prays that those who believe in him would be with him. They are to know and experience the fact that the father has made him the ruler of the world.
God's love has installed him as the loving Lord of all. Our uniqueness as Christians is always undergirded by love. The Father loves Jesus, and that same love surrounds God's people and makes him present into all of the world. We are to be known by our love. I want to take a moment for, um, just for reflection. If you would just indulge me here and close your eyes. I want to ask us, like, what are the drivers in our lives? What do we serve? What are the things that guide our decision-making and how we see ourselves and how we see the world? A good test of this is like, what was like a semi-major decision you had to make recently? What drove that decision? What was the first thing that came to your mind when you were making that decision? Was it money, approval, comfort? Was it out of a sense of inadequacy and a need to do something? There's nothing wrong with money, approval, or comfort in and of themselves. And these things factor into a lot of decisions we make, but sometimes we get to a point where we feel like we would be lost without one of those things. Where we go, gosh, I, I'm nothing if I'm not this. I'm nothing if I can't be identified as this. I'm nothing if I don't make this. <laughs> I'm nothing if this person doesn't think that way about me. Those things we think rule the world, even if we'd never say it. Another way to think about this is, was your decision-making driven by fear of losing something? Or was it out of love? I hope that all of us hear God's words of liberation today. You are free. You are loved. You don't have to be led by those things anymore. You don't have to believe those stories about yourself anymore. You're not defined by your failures. You're not defined by your inadequacies. In Christ, by the power of the Spirit, there is a better way. Gracious, loving God, we are so thankful for a different story that you've given us, a different way of being human in the world. Thank you that you define us by your love, not by all the things that we've done or the things that we haven't done. We are all consciously aware that our world tells so many stories about how we're supposed to be and who we're supposed, who we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to think about ourselves. And yet you give us a better way. We surrender to your Holy Spirit today. We trust you. We thank you. As we come to this table together, I pray that you would continue to form us by your love. In Jesus' name, amen.